awesome. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20, 1, 21. And we've been continuing our journey on the Acts of the Apostles and focusing highly on the Apostle Paul, who was a man who was so brave because he knew that Christ was with him. He knew that the Holy Spirit had called him to a specific task and knew that there was no power greater than Christ. Last week, it seems that there was a constant theme in Paul's life that wherever he went, there was either revival or riots. And that's how powerful that the gospel is. And you'll see that in your own life when you allow Christ to shine through you is that many times Christ is an offense and is a dividing point in a believer's life. It divides us from family members and friends. It divides us from coworkers and lifestyles. That when people know that we are Christian, sometimes it causes them to love us or hate us. And there are those who are more indifferent and those who are able to listen. But it also seems that in Jesus' life, that he left people for the most part either completely in love with him or against him. And as we've been studying how Paul is has this heart of the gospel in his mind, he wants to go out and spread this. And Paul was a, whoa, that looks pretty cool, huh? All the crazy trees flying in the wind. Paul was led by the Spirit to go to his brethren, the guys who he grew up alongside of, side by side, learning from men like Gamaliel, these wise Jewish rabbis. And Paul knew doctrine. He knew of Jehovah God and all the Old Testament. He was one of the leading guys in the Sanhedrin. He was there when Stephen was accused of blasphemy and he was holding the coats of men and as they stoned him. But once Jesus got a hold of Paul's life, saved him, turned him towards the way, the truth, and the life, Paul had this desire in his heart to go to those men whom he grew up alongside, whom he was being discipled alongside of. And he wanted to give the gospel to them. He wanted them to be Jews who were whole and complete in the word of God. Because you see, they were missing something. Though they had all the laws in the Old Testament and the prophets in their minds, they were missing the relationship with God. They were missing Jesus. And Paul felt that if he could just go to them and explain to them his story, that he would be able to win some. And in fact, he did. But as we're going to see today, the majority of the Jewish men, they end up turning against him 
causing riots as we saw there in Ephesus a few weeks ago. But Paul now desires to go back to Jerusalem. And last week we studied how the Holy Spirit had spoken through the prophet and had given Saul confirmation that if he was going to go to Jerusalem, that there would be many trials awaiting him, imprisonment. So this is what Paul is headed towards. But Paul is so in love with Christ that to him, he wouldn't be bound to any chains, to any man or establishment, but he was bound in chains to Christ. So with this, we begin with Acts chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. The following day, to Rhodes, and from there, to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. So Paul is making his way up the coast, down the coast, on these ships, to go to Jerusalem. And as he's heading there, his disciples, whom he would come across, they said, through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that Paul had already told them that he goes bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. He said this in verse 22 and 23 in Acts chapter 20. He says, And now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So now if these guys are telling Paul in the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And yet Paul is saying he goes bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. Is there a contradiction here in the Bible? Is there a contradiction to what the spirit is saying? It might seem that way as you take a a simple glance and we have to fall back on what we know as God's attributes is that God is a God of order. He does not contradict his word. So when God says something, he means it. What makes accurate logic of what's happening here in this context is that Paul was led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and these disciples are also, who are saved, have this love for Paul that they don't desire that he would be brought into chains This chapter is actually going to go a little bit deeper on how that all works out in a few verses. So we'll explain that a little bit more in a bit. But in verse 5, it says, When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children 
till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. So here's something that's super cool, is that as Paul is now going to journey to Jerusalem, the men here on the beach from Tyre, they were disciples of Paul, and they brought all their families together to say, hey, let's go pray right here on the beach. Pray for Paul. Pray for his journey. And what's super awesome is how these men would bring their families with them, the wives, the children. A lot of times we, we think that family time should be spent together playing Uno or going out to the mall and to get places to eat. And that is good family time. But how much more important is it the family that prays together, the family that goes to church together? It's a strong family unit that does this. You see, they also too weren't afraid of what other people thought of them there on the beach as they knelt down on the shore and the public and the open and prayed. When we got to do that for our beach baptism, it, it seemed as though uh, there was so many people around us. And when we finally started to get together to have our baptism, though there was only a group of about 15 of us, it seemed that people began to notice and try to part a little bit and give us a little bit of space there in the water. And we had an awesome time. And it's an awesome witness and testimony for, for those when they see that baptism happening, those prayers being given to the Lord. And so they knelt down on the shore and they prayed. And look at also this, is that despite them telling Paul, don't go, don't go, they still wanted to pray for him. There was a unity amongst them. Though sometimes Christians have disagreements on what God is saying, they were able to unify and respect Paul and give him that, that honor that they felt that the Spirit was still leading Paul. Look at verse 6. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So now, Paul is now leaving on this boat. Knowing that he's going to enter into tribulations, knowing that the Spirit has warned him, he reminds me of the Moravian missionaries. There were two missionaries many years ago who, they were German. These two men, Johann Aldober and David Nietzschman. And these two men loved Christ. And there, the Dutch had overtaken the Moravian Islands and had enslaved many. And Johan and David, they wanted to spread the gospel to these Moravian islands. And so they sought to get on a boat to go over there. But those who ruled over the island said, no, you're not going to bring your gospel to our Moravians. We don't want the gospel of Christ to come here and fill their minds about freedom in Christ. 
So Johan and David said, fine, all right. If you won't let us go as missionaries, then we'll go as slaves. And they put themselves into bondage towards these men, these slave owners. And they got on this boat. And as the boat was departing and heading away from their home, despite the fact that their families probably tried to convince them not to go, despite the fact that their, their loved ones and friends thought that they were crazy and insane, they got on the boat, and as it sailed away, they turned around, looked back at those who were on shore, and they shouted out back to their families and said, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. You see, Jesus deserves to have our lives. And these two men, they knew this. They knew the truth of that. This one life that is soon to be passed, that only what's done in it for Christ will last. And that's what Paul was doing. He was headed towards the same journey of trials that were going to await him. And then in verse 7, And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemas, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. See, Philip here, accepts Paul now as Paul and his friends are are journeying and probably tired. And he lets them come into his house and he gives them that hospitality of, of caring for them. But here's something that's very interesting about Philip the Evangelist. This is not uh, one of the, the Philips who was the disciple. But this Philip the Evangelist was the one who preached to to the eunuch that we read about in the book of Acts. This was also one of the Philips who was chosen, one of those seven men, alongside of Stephen, the martyr. So there, if you guys remember, there was a dispute in the church amongst the Hellenists and the Greek Jews. And they needed to pick seven men who would take care of these widows to serve and wait to wait tables. And Philip was one of these seven men who was chosen. And he was a humble man who the first thing that God called him to do was just wait tables, to look after the widows, to care for them. And since there was a small group of just seven men, I know that Philip had to have known Stephen that he had to have served alongside of Stephen, and there was that spiritual brotherhood. Which tells me that Philip also would have been there, most likely when Stephen was being stoned, when Philip was being killed. Saul, if you guys remember, was there holding the coats of these men who were stoning Stephen. 
So Philip would have witnessed his friend, his brother and the Lord being martyred. And who else was there? You remember? Saul was there. Saul was holding the coats of the men who were killing Stephen. And now here we have Philip and Paul in the same room. Philip is inviting Paul into his house and saying, you know what? The forgiveness of Christ, it overpowers what you did to my brother, how you killed him. We see forgiveness is a huge part of a believer's life where Philip is now welcoming Paul. And then in verse nine, now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So here at verse nine, Philip and his, his family with the four daughters they prophesied, which is awesome. That, that gift of prophecy of being able to say those things that the Lord is going to do in the future and that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't see the, the four virgin daughters being pastors or, or teaching here, but they are prophesying. And then at verse 10, Agabus, if you remember in Acts chapter 11, he predicted that a famine would come over the entire Roman Empire. And here, Agabus is also coming down from Judea to meet with Paul and his companions, his disciples. And look at verse 11. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Hmm. As I see Agabus kind of being theatrical in his prophecy, he grabs Paul's belt and binds his own hands and says, so shall the man be bound who goes to Jerusalem. I'm reminded that sometimes the prophets were seen as quite interesting, as quite theatrical. One of my uh, favorite stories of a prophet is the prophet Ezekiel. How God would use him to give messages to the nation of Israel. And many times in these very dramatic and theatrical ways, I'll say. When Israel had turned their hearts away from the Lord... God was going to bring in another nation to ch chasten them, to punish them for turning away from God, knowing that they would turn back to him. And he would call Ezekiel and he would say, look, Ezekiel, I want you to take your undergarments and bury them under a rock and leave them there for months and then go back and dig it up and put this your undergarments on and then walk around in just your undergarments and say, this is what the nation of Israel is like. This dirty, stinky undergarment that I'm wearing. And then he would tell Ezekiel again, Ezekiel, I want you to go and lay on your side every night on the same side out in the open space so everyone can see you laying on your side. And then do that for many weeks 
And then God would come to him again and say, look, now I want you to flip on the other side and lay out in the open square on the other side. And so then Ezekiel would do that for many weeks. And he said, look, when he got up, his bones were hurting in him because he was always laying on that same side. So he would fill that message that God wanted to give to the Israelites. He would have Ezekiel dig a hole out of the wall and crawl out of it and say, in the same way that Ezekiel, you crawled out of that wall is the same way that this other nation is going to drag your people and all your property out of this wall. So God many times used some interesting characters in the Bible. And we see Agabus doing that same thing. Now, in verse 12, it says, Now when he heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul knew that the chains that he was going to face, as we had said before, they wouldn't be to any man or nation, but his chains would be from God. He writes about this to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he says, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Sometimes God puts us in those places, those places and lifestyles and workplaces where we're amongst coworkers and friends and family members who aren't saved. And sometimes we think, oh, like, oh I hate this position that I'm in. But we sometimes miss out on the opportunity that God has us to be there, to be a light, to share the gospel with our friends, our family members, to be an example Paul, whenever he was chained to people, it seems that he would end up spreading the gospel to them. And the guard had no choice but to stay there and to listen probably to what Paul was saying. Again, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul would say, I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And Ephesians 3, 1, Paul says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. See, Paul didn't say that he was a prisoner of Rome or of Caesar or of the Jews, but he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. May our hearts and our minds see ourselves as God's prisoner. It's quite ironic how when we become a prisoner of Christ, we become free to this life. 
to the world. In verse 14, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now, I noticed that Luke is writing this book. He's writing the book of Acts. And he uses that personal pronoun, we ceased. Meaning that even Luke himself was there perhaps trying to persuade Paul from going on this journey to Jerusalem where chains awaited. Now, again, here is that testimony. You see, what was happening is that the Spirit was speaking through the prophet, through Agabus and through these other disciples that the trials were going to come to Paul. But the Spirit still wasn't telling Paul not to go. He was just preparing him for what was to come. And sometimes, even like we see in this chapter, the believers here, who are also full of the Spirit, who are prophesying in the Spirit, were now giving Paul misdirection, saying, don't go. And in our life, there's going to be times when we have good Christian people telling us good advice that is not God's will for us. And that's when we need to have that personal relationship with Christ to know that if God is calling us to trials, if God is calling us to pains and tribulations, or even just a place that we can walk boldly knowing that we're full of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to determining the will of God in our life, many times uh, if there's a believer uh, who is abiding in Christ, who has died to themselves already, who has said, you know what, I'm casting aside my own selfish ways and I want to put God's will first. Many times God then takes that man or woman and then begins to just say, go do what your desire is. Now that you've left behind your own selfish ways, now that you've left behind the world, go do what I've put in your heart already. And that all comes with prayer and with discerning the voice of the Lord and it takes time to mature and to be able to discern God's voice. Many times for young Christians, there will be some trials that come in thinking that they've heard the voice of the Lord, but in fact, they are being led by their emotions. And sometimes God uses those failures and those disappointments to help us to understand and get more in tune with what God is saying. Right now, I believe that as a nation, we need to remind ourselves that God is in control. We don't need to get anxious and scared about the future because we know the trials that Christ warned us of, that they are already coming and they are all pointing toward his return. So if we are headed toward the return of Christ, we must respond with a serious focus on the call that he has placed on each and every one of our lives. We should be praying for truth in our life praying for righteousness. In today's climate, we should be praying for the president and pray for whoever becomes president. God is in control. 
And we are responsible for the work that he's called us to. So with all this craziness in our lives, our personal lives, remember God is sovereign. Paul remembered this. That's why he knew that he can go to Jerusalem full of the spirit, even though trials awaited him. So we look at verse 15. And after those days, we packed up and went up to Jerusalem. Something real quick, real interesting about going to Jerusalem is that from whatever direction you go to Jerusalem, you have to go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on a incline on this elevated level. So whenever you see the disciples going to Jerusalem, they're going up to Jerusalem. And they would sing about this in their songs of worship. In verse 16, also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now this James we read about here, this is James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. There is another James that we read about, and that James was the disciple of Christ who was beheaded by Herod previously. But this James, he ends up writing books in the Bible. Great books for uh, just strong Christian living. In verse 19, after they go to James's house, it says, when, we, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. Now, as they're sharing with one another the work that God has done in their life and through Paul, notice they give glory to God. They said, it says in verse 20, they glorified God. And they realized that it is him who is doing the work. In verse 19, those things which God did among the Gentiles, not Paul, but God did this. And that gives me comfort to remember that it's God's church. It's God who's doing the work. May we just be vessels available for him. And then in verse 21, but they, the Jews, have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Now Paul was preaching a new doctrine, a doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. And this contradicted the idea the Jews had about working your way to God through sacrifice and spiritual practice. So now they had heard that Paul was beginning to preach this doctrine that 
You don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And all these other religious practices of sacrifice that Paul was saying, we don't need to do those anymore. And for certain Jews, this made them feel uneasy about the faith that they practiced, uneasy about this new doctrine. And for even other Jews, this actually made them hate Paul because they felt as though they were losing some pride and some power in their place as a priest. They felt like, wait, we're supposed to be the mediators between God and man, not this Jesus. And then in verse 23, James is warning Paul. He says, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So James here is trying to help ease Paul into the place of all the Jews and the religious leaders. He's saying, look, we have four Jews here who have taken this Nazarite vow. We've talked a little bit about the Nazarite vow. It was when a Jew would let his, for 30 days, just hair grow crazy. And he wouldn't shave himself or anything. And he would fast and stay away from everything that was related to the world. And at the end of the 30 days, he would then take his hair, shave it, and then burn the hair as an offering to the Lord. And with this, there was some uh, prices and some things that they would have to pay for as they would get a sacrifice to, to give to the Lord. And there was a cost to it. So James is saying, look, these four men here who have taken these vows, why don't you sponsor them and pay for them to go to the temple and provide for their needs? That way, it, people, the other Jews who are questioning your doctrine will see that you still hold honor and respect towards the Jewish traditions. And I'm reminded that Paul, though he knew that he had the freedom in Christ, that he still would become like one of his brethren when necessary, when it wouldn't go against God, he would become like the Jews to the Jews. So he said, okay, and I'm sure it had to be hard for Paul to be like, ah, oh, you want me to do what for these guys? Like, I'm, we're, we're freeing Christ. Like, why do we need to do this? Because, but because Paul knew the weakness of the Jews, because he knew they were so legalistic, he was like, okay, this is something that I could compromise for. This is something that I will allow. I will pay for these Jews to go have their religious ceremonies in order that I might win some. In verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now again here, James is reiterating the things that they were telling the Gentile believers, but not the Jews, but the Gentiles, saying, look, they don't need to go through all the intense religious practices, but they should at least keep from idols, from drinking the blood, and from things strangled. 
and from sexual immorality. And then in verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. You see, Paul on his previous mission journeys would go to Asia Minor, and there he would preach to the Jews first. And like I said, many times he would come across and there would be a revival, and other times it would be riots. And so the Jews who had already heard Paul and his doctrine saw Paul now coming again there to Jerusalem. And they're like, oh, it's that guy. Again, he's back and he's spreading his gospel of of freedom in Christ. We need to stop him. And so they stir up the whole crowd and they grab Paul. In verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. You see, they're now accusing Paul. They're accusing Paul of being against the Old Testament ways. They're accusing Paul even of bringing a Gentile into the holy place. Now, there in the temple in Jerusalem, in their times, there was the Holy of Holies. That was only the high priest could go into. And outside of that, the inner courts were for Jews. Uh, There was also a place just for the priests. And then even outside on the outer courts, there was places for the Gentiles. But Gentiles were not allowed to go inside the inner courts. And they were now accusing Paul of even bringing a Gentile in, which Paul didn't do. And then in verse 30, it says, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. You see, the Jews were so caught up in the tradition that they didn't want the Gentiles coming close to their holies. I'm reminded of the account of Chuck Smith with his his staff, his leadership, when the hippies started to come to church. Back then in the in the 70s, all the hippies would come in with barefooted and and probably smelly, maybe they didn't wear deodorant. And they come in with their long hair and bare feet that were dirty and they started to dirty up the carpet a little bit. And so the workers and the staff members and the ministers went to Chuck and said, hey, Chuck, like, we need to tell these hippies to wear shoes and dress properly because they're, they're dirtying up the carpet. And Chuck said, oh, the carpet's getting dirty? And they're like, yeah. And he said, well, then rip out the carpet and let them come. And you see, sometimes we get so caught up in 
the religion in the traditions of men that we miss out in the heart of Christ's gospel of allowing people to come to hear the word of being loving to those who are different than us of when we see the movement of the Holy Spirit of just jumping into it with both feet we need to be open to when the Spirit is leading but these Jews were not It says in verse 31, Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So now... The Roman guard hears of this riot that's taking place for Paul. And so they go to find out what's going on. And as the Jews see the Romans come, they stop beating Paul because they had no legal right to beat Paul. It says in verse 33, Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. You see, it's now happening what, exactly what God had prophesied of, exactly what the Holy Spirit had said to Paul many times. He's bound in chains, one chain on one arm and one chain on the other. Again, in verse 11, if you look back, it said that the Holy Spirit said, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns the spelt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. You see, God's word never fails. God allowed Paul to be taken. See, many times we we think that because we're a Christian, we're not supposed to endure harsh and bad things. On Wednesday nights, we're studying Joseph's life. And right now we just covered how he was just thrown into prison, accused of rape. He was trying to remain pure and ran from Potiphar's wife. And God had allowed for him to be thrown into the prison. But the common theme of Joseph's life is that the Lord was with him. Three times in the chapter we just read in Genesis, it says the Lord was with him. See, the Lord is with us in trials and in tribulation, just like the Lord is with Paul here. And then in verse 34, and some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. We see violence towards the gospel here. We see actually illegal activity. The same way that they took Christ illegally in the middle of the night, which was against their Jewish law and against Roman law. 
and they had a secret trial illegally. And there they beat Christ before the Sanhedrin. And as they beat him in the face, they would say, prophesy, who is hitting you? Paul is now sharing in the trials of Christ. And as he's being led now by this Roman, what's interesting is that God actually uses this Roman centurion, this Roman guard, to stop, to save him. Look at verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So here this commander, he hears Paul begin to speak to him in Greek. And he was thinking that Paul was just a Egyptian who had stirred up these Jews to lead a rebellion to try to take the Jerusalem temple. This is actually, according to history, Josephus, the historian, writes about this, that there was an Egyptian who claimed that he was a prophet and deceived people, and they all followed him to the Mount of Olives so that they were going to take back the city walls there in Jerusalem. But Felix, the Roman governor, he came and attacked and stopped this rebellion that was rising and the Egyptian fled. What's interesting is that the Egyptian, with all these Jews who were murderers, who were fighting against the Roman government, those men were called the Sicari or the Sicario. That's where we get that word from, Sicario, were these Jewish men who were fighting against the Roman government, who were murderers. Now, this commander thinks that Paul is the leader of these Sicaris, and he's saying, wait a second, you can speak Greek? I thought you were this Egyptian guy. It says in verse 39, but Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, Paul here is using his citizenship for good cause. Paul's an interesting character because he's a Jew by ethnicity, but he's also born in a Roman city. And he's also was raised in Greek culture. So we have three different nations that Paul is all very knowledgeable with. And he could relate and speak and converse with all these different types of people. And here he's saying, hey, look, I'm from a city that's under the Roman province. And it would be illegal for this commander to then begin to beat him at that point without any trial. And so because the commander begins to see, oh, oh, this is an educated man, a man who I need to allow to speak to his people, he said, okay, I, I see you're not causing discord. I see you're not the Egyptian rebellion leader. Why don't you go ahead and speak on to what you want to your brethren? And then in verse 40, it says, so when he had given him permission, 
Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And there was a great silence. He spoke to them in the Hebrew language. It's quite interesting, all these different languages this man can speak. Now, Paul had waited for this moment for his whole Christian life. He was thinking, God, if you can just get me to my brethren, give me an audience with them. I'll, I'll be able to share my story. They'll listen to me, God. And they'll, they'll hear the gospel and they'll realize and understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And what we're going to find out next week, when you read ahead, is that Paul so longed for this moment and when he finally got it, it came crashing down. That the Jews who he felt that he could relate to the most, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders, that when he gave them the gospel, they rejected it. And this moment that perhaps he was waiting, if I could just get to them, turned into one that was a disappointment. But I know that God used this in Paul's life so that he can learn that what was more important was that he was obedient to God. You see, God asks us to obey the call. He's not asking us to produce the result. See, that's up to God whether a, a, a person is going to listen and heed. It's up to God and that person. Only the work of the Holy Spirit can bring a man or a woman to salvation. But Paul here was learning to be obedient to the call of God in his life. And Paul, uniquely enough, would end up, instead of what he was thinking in his mind, I'd be a great minister to the Jewish people, God uses him greatly with the Gentile people. And the Holy Spirit begins to open up the hearts and minds of the Gentiles to where we are sitting here in this room today. I think we're all Gentiles here, actually. Knowing that the gospel has came to us, it is also for the Jew first, but that we have been chosen to be grafted into the family of God, to be witnesses and representatives of him here on this earth with the little bit of time that we have. So as we see this week, may we go forth boldly. Perhaps I've been too timid in my faith in Christ. I think there's many times when I could be bolder. And I think there's times in our life as a whole that as Christians, as believers, that we should really speak up for truth, for righteousness, for love of Christ. So may we turn away from the world and from sin. May we be submitted to God through trial through the leading of his spirit. May God fill you with his gospel of grace this week. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, to thank you for this day. We pray and we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would fill us with your boldness. May we be discerning, Lord, on where you're leading us, Father. Though there's the voices of so many people in our life, Lord God, may we have boldness in where you're calling us. Fill us with your spirit. May we wait upon you. May we have trust that you're leading, that you're sovereign and in control. Lord God, I pray for boldness in my own heart, Lord. For trusting you, Lord God. I pray that same for those who are listening, Father. May we have unity amongst our brothers and sisters. Forgiveness, Lord. May we realize, Lord God, that this life is passing away. Help us to focus on what is eternal. May we know, Father, that your word never fails. May that be living in our life. May we see your Holy Spirit begin to use us mightily more and more. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I got one more announcement real quick. Um, next Sunday, uh, after service, we're going to have a little bit of food and a little bit of fellowship. Uh, but then after that, if you guys want to stay, we're going to be watching a, uh, it's a documentary on the philosophy of ministry, uh, including some Chuck Smith and some of the leaders of Calvary Chapel. But it's a, a great uh, tool for discipleship and for seeing that as a church, as Redeemed Church, we're going to follow the Bible and what the Bible says and the teaching of the Word. So if you guys want to put that in your calendar for next week, if you make it a, a family thing, may we draw closer to the Lord. So let's end with this song. will bow down and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise who could stop the Lord Almighty our God is the lion the lion of Judah he's roaring with power Fighting our battles, every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that 
bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. Who could stop the Lord Almighty? Who could stop the Lord Almighty? Who could stop the Lord Almighty? Stop the Lord Our God is the Lion The Lion of Judah He's roaring with power And fighting our battles Every knee will bow before Him Our God is the Lamb The Lamb that was slain For the sin of the world His blood breaks the chains Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb Every knee will bow before Him